We are experiencing a youth mental health crisis across the globe. We've all heard this in the news in recent months. It is true that we as mental health professionals are seeing increasing numbers of young people coming to therapy in crisis, including with suicidal thoughts and behaviors as well as non-suicidal self-injury or NSSI for short, and there just doesn't seem to be enough therapists to meet the demand. However, we know that adolescence is a stage of development characterized by change in identity exploration and development. So rather than it being a youth mental health crisis, could it be possible that many young people, but not all of course, are experiencing adolescent challenges but expressed through mental health language, where ups and downs in life, for example, are now often regarded as psychologically abnormal or unhealthy, where sadness is now described as depression or a quick change in mood is now described as bipolar, that perhaps talking so much about mental health in the news has indeed helped tackle mental health stigma, but also inadvertently led to overutilization of mental health diagnosis terminology to describe typical emotional experiences. Self-harm, including both NSSI and suicide, must always be taken seriously, whether it seems like a crisis or not. But what if getting in touch with difficult emotional experiences sometimes feels more painful than talking about suicide or even self-injuring? What if some people are invalidated and not taken seriously when they express emotional vulnerability and only receive serious proper care and validation when they use mental health language and disclose NSSI or suicidal thoughts and behaviors? To answer these questions and to provide a psychoanalytic perspective and peek into the psyche of young people in crisis who self-injure, I am joined today from London, England by Dr. Maria Papadima and Dr. Rachel Atchison. Welcome to the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast, a resource for parents, professionals, and people with lived experience. I'm your host, Dr. Nicholas Westers, clinical psychologist at Children's Health, associate professor at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, and chair of the Media and Communications Committee of the International Society for the Study of Self-Injury, or ISSS, or simply IISS. A lot of mental health professionals are seeing more young people coming to therapy saying, I think I have depression, or borderline personality disorder, autism, or derealization, etc., The therapist might ask, oh, what makes you think this? Or how did you come to this conclusion? The young person responds, I saw it on TikTok, or I saw a post on Instagram. I'm not here to vilify social media in any way, especially since I believe it has its positives, but where's this trend stemming from? A few months ago, my manager at work told me about a new paper in the Journal of Child Psychotherapy entitled, The Search for Identity, Working Therapeutically with Adolescents in Crisis. I read it, and it really put to words what so many mental health professionals have been observing over recent years in their work with young people, where young people are using mental health language from a mental health framework to describe their distress. The authors, Dr. Maria Papadima and Dr. Rachel Atchison. Dr. Maria Papadima is a child and adolescent psychotherapist in London. She focuses on work with adolescents and their families, and part of her therapy practice is within a National Health Service public clinic for young people who present in crisis. In that clinic, she has been developing and researching together with her colleagues a brief psychotherapy intervention aimed at crisis work with a focus on meaning-making rather than only risk management. Dr. Papadima has multiple publications, and she teaches, supervises, and is an editor for the Journal of Child Psychotherapy. 
Dr. Rachel Atchison is also a child and adolescent psychotherapist. She trained at the Independent Psychoanalytic Child and Adolescent Psychotherapy Association. She is currently school counselor at Westminster School in London and has previously worked in the National Health Service crisis teams in child and adolescent mental health services, as well as in adolescent inpatient services. Dr. Atchison has multiple publications, and she has taught courses at the Anna Freud Center and Birkbeck University of London, and is also an editor at the Journal of Child Psychotherapy. I'm happy to have you both on the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having us. Yeah, we're really pleased to be here. How did each of you become interested in self-injury and treating people, treating young people who self-injure or who are at risk for suicide? That's an interesting question. Before starting, I would like to comment also in the interesting difference between the term self-injury and self-harm, because in the UK, we tend to say self-harm. So I hope it's okay if sometimes I use that term. In my case, and I think in Rachel's, there was a general interest in working with adolescents, not particularly with adolescents in crisis. So we were doing that already for a number of years. But then I, I guess working with adolescents ends up involving working with a lot of crisis because... Sometimes they would risk-take more than other age groups. Would you agree, Rachel? So it's a more general interest yeah. in working with adolescents that, that led us to this. Yeah. Yeah, for me, there's also, uh, because our training is is from 0 to 25, and I think for me there was an interest in, you know, less play-based modes of work and moving more towards kind of verbal discourse as the therapeutic intervention. And, of course, you know, being playful with words. But, yeah play being less the kind of primary mode of communication. And that meaning that work with adolescents and young adults was what we were more drawn to. And, you know, I would completely agree with Maria that I think you would really struggle to work with adolescents and not encounter risk. And I suppose working in teams that are based around work with adolescents, the cases that do present with risk that everyone is is worried about tend to become more dominant in the team. And sometimes in certain teams end up being perhaps the only cases that are able to be seen or seen for kind of any significant length of time. And so I suppose, yes, you become interested in what, in what ends up being in front of you. In that way, both of us having worked in the National Health Service, there are teams that are set up particularly to work with adolescents at risk. These teams are often structured quite differently than other teams in National Health Service context. So, for example, can facilitate a lot of early intervention work in a way that a generic team that didn't manage risk wouldn't be able to offer. And I suppose it has also been, you know, I can speak for myself and I think I'm speaking for Marie as well, our interest in being able to intervene early. That meant working with this particular population of young people was really, really attractive. Yes, I, I would like to add to that absolutely. That even though at the beginning I certainly felt a lot of worry about working with risk or working with suicidal ideation, and there's a lot of pain in the families and the young people. However, what we discovered to our surprise over time is that this opportunity to work with families in a crisis actually offered offers also an opening and intervening fairly quickly, which you have to do with the crisis, can lead to really meaningful work. So we discovered to our surprise over time that the work actually is quite enjoyable, however very difficult at times. Now, prior to the pandemic, there was a lot of talk about mental health and mental health difficulties increasing. And this was throughout the world. And then now since the pandemic, I've seen news articles here in the US, there in Europe, 
Australia, all over the world talking about these mental health crises, not only among adolescents, but also adults. Why do you think so many young people today specifically identify as having mental health problems? It's a very good question. And you're right. It's absolutely everywhere, isn't it? There is such a worry about our young people nowadays, but also, as you said, for the impact the pandemic has had to all of us, and more widely, how we think about our mental health as a society. I'm sure it's the same in the US. Certainly, this is the case in the UK. I mean, I will start by just saying that Rachel and I feel that we started noticing how mental health as a framework has become so dominant to all of us, not just young people, as a way of understanding ourselves, understanding our internal world, and understanding the world around us. So it's no surprise that young people would also pick up on this framework. I guess we all do want, very understandably, to have answers for something that will take away the pain or give us an answer of what's going on with us. So turning to a framework that involves mental health has become one of the dominant frameworks in our society. I would be very interested to hearing your thoughts as well. That's the first thing we feel we notice, that more and more this is a dominant way of thinking about ourselves. And young people Mm -hmm. in the pandemic in particular turned a lot to the internet, particularly when they were isolated at home. And in the internet, this language is dominant and it offers support and community as well. So, for example, if a young person understands themselves as having anxiety, an anxiety disorder or having ADHD, they can find very good support and a sense of community online. I guess so that was our starting point, Rachel, wasn't it, in our thinking? Yeah. Yeah. And I I think it's important to say that we're not being in a blanket way kind of critical of this approach. I think it has it has different sides to it. I think sometimes, you know, the language, it can be useful, you know, for example, to notice when you are feeling anxious and that, you know, maybe anxiety is something that you're experiencing more at certain times in your life or in certain situations. And we also think that sometimes it can be, you know, perhaps a useful first step to sort of identify with a kind of a mental health framework. What we notice sometimes is that young people can use this language in a way that it places the issue at a slight distance from themselves. So I don't know, even just the sort of the simple way of saying I have anxiety rather than I'm feeling anxious, it's maybe kind of puts it slightly in a, a way we might talk more about a physical health problem, like I have diabetes or I have a cold. And I think this can be, you know, this can be a useful first step, but it also, you know, it can be limiting as well. And often part of our work can be sort of if a young person's coming with that description of how they're feeling, sort of delving a bit deeper, you know, what that what that actually means for them, rather than just having the word to label something. What is it they're really experiencing? Um, and how does that feel? And in that way, becoming and being able to be felt as a bit more kind of an integrated part of them rather than, I don't know, almost something they've they've caught or a condition they've acquired. It can start a conversation, but if you get too stuck at that point, then it's it can be not so useful. And also, I guess what's really important is to remember that in the particularly in the early adolescent years, there is so much change in the body for all of us when we went through those years, so much change in the body and in the mind, in the family constellation as well, that it can lead to a lot of instability for a while and a lot of confusion about, you know, who am I during this time? which would then make, it would make a lot of sense that 
needing to find an answer, particularly with adolescents who may, for example, they might be going, the parents might be going through a divorce, or there may be another vulnerability, particularly for those, but not just for those. It may feel very comforting and helpful to have a framework and a formulation and an answer of why this is happening. And very often we find that adolescents want to stay with that answer for a while, and we need to be there and stay with them to explore this answer they have chosen to give or that makes sense to them without questioning it for a while and understanding what it means to them. But under the diagnosis, under this language, there is always their own individual story as well, which eventually we will get Dr. Atchison, it's interesting you mentioned the difference between an individual or a young person saying, I have anxiety versus I'm feeling anxious. What I often see and think about is individuals who I see or treat say, my anxiety, my depression, my anxiety is acting up, my depression is back, which I've conceptualized or made sense of that as possibly helpful and unhelpful. Helpful in the sense that they're taking responsibilities, like this is how I'm feeling, this is taking ownership of it, which can be a first step in overcoming it. Yet on the other hand, it's possessive. It's like this is part of me, mine, and I will always have it. So I think there's the nuances in language can be tricky and both helpful and unhelpful at times. Yeah, and I think one of the things that Maria and I I feel very strongly is that sometimes a sort of a way of talking and describing and thinking about mental health that is designed for adults can be kind of almost directly transposed onto adolescence. You know, as Maria was saying, instability during adolescence is, you know, very normal and to be expected. And actually, if we don't see it, we worry for different reasons. To pick up on what you're saying about, you know, sort of my anxiety and my depression, I suppose, you know, I I don't work with adults, but when I think about the difference in terms of mental health issues, you know, my understanding would be that, I guess, difficulties in adulthood could be, you know, much more enduring and recurrent in a way that talking about something as, you know, my anxiety or my depression might have an element of kind of acceptance and usefulness and being able to tolerate something that comes and goes. Whereas to hold on to anything too tightly in adolescence is quite against the period of change that it's characterized as. And I suppose, like Maria was saying, you know, we meet young people who come with a narrative sometimes it can feel like a lot of the language that we would see more associated with, I guess, adult psychiatry can become imbued in how they've made sense themselves, which, yeah, can be a really useful first step. But yes, something that we want to be able to help them think, you know, more deeply and more individually about as time goes on. I know I have to make sure I'm as sensitive as I can, knowing that a lot of young people listen to this podcast and a lot of young people and individuals with lived experience of self-injury listen to this podcast. It's not a one-size-fits-all and it may or may not apply, so I want to be sensitive to that and how we're talking about this. Talking about how you've suggested that this adolescent mental health crisis may be more accurately termed simply an adolescent crisis that's expressed through mental health language. You've alluded to that already. Can you talk a little bit more in practical terms about what you mean by that and how self-injury fits within this adolescent crisis? I guess we could start by just saying that I want to (laughs) almost reclaim the word crisis as not only a negative, but also a positive. Because adolescence, the same as other periods of change in life, involves a crisis always anyway, just because of the tremendous change that happens during that time. As we said before, change in the body, change in the mind, and change in the family. So adolescence is already a crisis. 
And there is a lot of thinking in, in psychoanalytic theory about that, about how we think about this crisis and what the challenges actually are. In a crisis, there are a lot of positives as well as negatives, but it is needed in terms of moving to the next step. But during the time of the crisis, there can be a lot of pain and a lot of instability and sometimes despair. So I would guess self-injury comes there. It's one of the ways young people tend to have to, I guess, ride the waves of this crisis. It's one of the ways they sometimes find solace, they may find comfort, they may find a sense of community sometimes, they may feel it off as an answer. So this is one possibility. Other, other young people may turn to self-harm as a way to punish themselves. So as I imagine we'll talk about further today, the various meanings, there's not one, but I think it can be one of the responses young people tend to have nowadays to navigating this period of change. Yeah. And I think I'd add to that, that all of us, you know, we exist in relation to each other. And for adolescents, for children, that should be even more the case, you know, other people, schools, parents, families, you know, supportive adults, they all have a role in terms of caring for and looking after young people. And so we really consider that when there is a crisis, when something has gone wrong, that it's the responsibility for that and the responsibility for things getting better should be um, seen more broadly than just in the young person themselves. That really, when we talk about it being an adolescent crisis rather than an adolescent mental health crisis, we want that to really indicate that it's as much or it can be as much how other people in the, the young person's life are relating to, supporting and helping them rather than solely something that's going on internally for the young person. And so we hope it's something that can feel hopeful in that way, that there's lots of areas where where change can happen, not just putting all the pressure on the individual themselves to be responsible for things improving. And we've been recently wondering about one more thing in terms of this question, which is whether the current mental health crisis in adolescence has got a bit worse. One of the reasons may be also because perhaps we adults in our society tend to tend to idealize more than perhaps in the past what adolescence is or what it should be. Uh, maybe there's a bit of an emphasis more nowadays on, you know, freedom, self-discovery, limited responsibility, and this idea that adolescents should be having fun and should be living the life we wish we still were able to live ourselves. I wonder whether this is more nowadays and whether it can feel we've kind of forgotten how difficult it is to be to be a teenager and when there are problems that can happen, whether we as an adult generation tend to see them as more unnatural or wrong or fight against them more than we would have done in the past. I wonder. I'm just, it's an open question. Relatedly, talking about how we learn about ourselves by interacting with others and can we view changes in society in the role of parents as linked to these changes in how we're viewing adolescents and adolescent crises? I mean, this is a very, very big well, and interesting topic, isn't it? very difficult for, for parents because when their son or their daughter is self-harming or has suicidal thoughts, it can be incredibly painful and there can be a feeling of panic. I mean, it's, it's completely natural. But yes, we could talk about some of the confusions that can happen from what we've been seeing in our work. And I guess the general thing to start from, and then Rachel, maybe you can expand because we were talking about this just yesterday, really. It's how confusing it can be for parents of adolescents to know what to do when there is self-harm, how to respond, what's the right way to respond. 
I think we were having a discussion about this, how on the one hand, they want to intervene and they want to help and they want to create safety plans. Sometimes they're pulled to a lot of firmness and a lot of punishing anger and reactions of panic. Sometimes other times the parents can feel they have to be very, very supportive and not demand anything from their teenager in terms of even ordinary boundaries. So it can become very confusing what it is they're supposed to do. Yes, and I think it links, I mean, more broadly to perhaps the confusion in both adolescents and their parents into, you know, what their relationship should be like at that stage of life anyway. And I suppose, you know, that's something that you know, will often come up in our work with parents. So, you know, prior to this, what's normal in your family? What's what's been going on? How do you spend time together? Do you talk about emotions? Do you talk about feelings? What do you do to have fun? Those kind of things. Often we will meet with parents who in many ways are, you know, have young people who are very capable or, you know, increasingly physically and emotionally independent and can sometimes be quite demanding of privacy and self-agency in a way that is absolutely their right to be. But I suppose, in our view, there always needs to be a tension between, you know, what the adolescent might want or feel they're ready for and what the parent in their position feels is appropriate or is willing to allow them. Sometimes we've worked with families where The ability of the child has been to kind of manage their emotional life, to be independent, has been overestimated through kind of no fault of the parents. I think sometimes it's not always clear what they're ready for, but that crisis can arise when they feel they've had to had to be too responsible for their life, for their emotional life, that they feel maybe suddenly quite overwhelmed by it. And in that way, I mean, I think we've been really helped by thinking about kind of psychoanalytic models of child development, where, you know, we really consider development as not a linear process, where regression is very normal to be expected and can actually accompany periods where young people are are reaching new goals or, or trying new things. And I think that can be unsettling for parents and sometimes feel like a bit of a setback. And I suppose things like self-harm, self-injury can become part of that in a way that feels really alarming. So for Maria and I in a UK context, often it's pressure around different points in the school year, maybe public exams coming up, areas like that, where on some level, the young person's pushing themselves, they're growing and developing and, and doing new things while you know, in another way, perhaps feeling very unprepared, very small, very incapable, very difficult emotions, and sometimes difficult behaviours like self-harm can arise in that context. It can be hard sometimes to pull those situations back to really understand how difficult the kind of the normal struggles of life can be. And I I say normal, I mean, (laughs) you know, exams can be really, um, I mean, they're very big things in young people's lives, but they're also things that, you know, the majority of young people have to go through at some point. But just how challenging those can be and how how prone young people can be to quite extreme feelings in those situations. But I suppose that it's not when regressions, when crisis happens in those contexts, it doesn't have to be something that sends the young person on a completely different track in life. It can be worked with, it can be understood, and, and development can keep progressing. I was thinking, Rachel, of what you said about this idea of regression. And I wonder whether you can think of it as something that all of us in every stage of life, but maybe particularly in certain stages, we will have moments where we will almost have a nostalgia for our previous self. And I think this happens in times such as toddlerhood, adolescence, maybe the female menopause, periods of intense physical transition and emotional transition where 
there's almost a back and forth movement. And this regression, adolescents very normally will do is sometimes they will want to behave in a kind of more emotional way, more young way, and they will actually miss their childhood. In fact, I read somewhere a beautiful quote, I think by Carl Pinkhart, that said that adolescence is the period where we have to break the spell of childhood. And I found that very beautiful. But then there's also progressive movement adolescents will, of course, have in terms of, you know, managing very well, having much more nuanced way of thinking. So for the parents, it can become very confusing sometimes and difficult, a difficult balance to attend to both those needs, the need to be affirmed and to be supported in the exciting progress and the the new steps, the new abilities, but at the same time to be supported in a more emotional way, which is still also needed. And it can be very, very hard to do that. And I really feel for the parents in this situation when a young person is putting themselves at risk. But I think holding in mind this back and forth movement for the parent may mm-hmm. help to gather them and for them to feel supported that it is a storm and that most likely it will pass and their adolescent still needs them. They might not necessarily feel able to say that always, but they do need them mm-hmm. to be outside in the storm rather than to panic and to down arms and just not be involved or, or Sometimes parents will not know what to do and turn to professionals, which happens often. And in a way, they need to be helped to trust in their own relationship with their teenager and in their own capacity to help them. Yeah, I think one of the main tasks of adolescence is separation. And I suppose in that context, parents need to be there to be left. Marie and I have worked with many parents who feel completely and utterly kind of rejected by their children, their adolescents in their crisis have made them feel useless and guilty and really as if they're doing a rubbish job, like they've completely failed. And it can be very hard for them to remain steadfast in their parental role in the face of, you know, such kind of difficult feedback. And so a lot of our work can be really kind of empowering parents to feel that they, you know, they have something really important to offer that actually only they can offer. You know, it's not something that that Maria and I can do on their behalf. It it needs to come from them. Just really sort of simple things for, you know, parents of adolescents, they, you know, will have gradually got used to being able to have a bit more freedom, you know, not needing to always be at home when their child is, for example. And they might be at home with their child and they're, you know, completely ignoring them, not talking to them and not appearing to need them to be there at all. But actually, if the parent believes them and really doesn't put any value on the fact that their child is home and, and they're home and they're there if they need them, I suppose it's sending a difficult message and it's it's believing something that's not there to be believed that should be taken with a, a good pinch of salt. Often work Maria and I do is, is try and keep in the parent's mind what they do know and understand about their child. So often when a crisis hits, and I suppose sometimes this can happen quite suddenly, where parents thought things were fine, and then they find out that actually their child is self-harming or has reported feeling suicidal. I guess what we've heard over and over again is, I don't know my child anymore, I don't know who they are. It can really panic that these behaviours and these feelings can create in the family, can break that connection with what the parent does know about their child or what they understand about them, and also their capacity to think, really, that they can be feel under so much pressure. And so often, you know, we're trying to help them think, well, what is it that you do know about their character? What do you understand about them? How were they, you know, when they were younger? How has this changed as they've been growing up? How does that fit within the context of adolescent development? And what behaviours can we see as 
to do with the current crisis and what can we see as more typically adolescent? And yeah, how does that inform how we respond to them? As Maria said, it can be very confusing for parents in terms of do they become just very rigid in a bid to keep their adolescent, their child safe, or do they become the opposite, totally permissive in the hope that that will keep them safe? And actually, in most cases, it wouldn't be either of those. It would be being able to be making decisions based on each individual situation rather than kind of having a one-size-fits-all approach. On that note, I'm actually still thinking also about your comment that in order for an adolescent to separate from their parent, the parent has to be there. I'll use a metaphor as parents being a lighthouse in a safe harbor where they stay the course, they keep shining their light and their child, their adolescent is safe when they're around them. And then they can go out, set sail into uncharted territory. They can weather some storms, but they can always know they can go back to that safe harbor during difficult times. You had mentioned, though, these regressions. Mm. You both had talked about the regressions and how adolescents might regress and how parents might be either overly permissive or overly intrusive, perhaps, and trying to keep their child safe when they're self-injuring or even thinking of suicide. What about those situations when parents are so worried that they sleep in the same room Mm -hmm. as their child or have their teenager sleep in their room to make sure they can stay safe and not self-injure, even if it's non-suicidally, or will it take away their bedroom doors? And another question related to schools and how they will give passes to allow students to leave class frequently to go to the bathroom and go to the nurse. In one hand, it seems like that could be helpful. But then on the other hand, it possibly could undermine their independence Mm -hmm. and and being able to manage self-injurious thoughts, urges successfully. I think what's really important, I mean, it's fascinating, isn't it, how this happens? It's really important because, yes, sometimes parents in a very understandable wish to keep their child safe, will take away the door, will sleep in the same room, will try to remove everything remotely dangerous. And I think what's really helpful, and we've talked a lot about it in our team and, and with Rachel, is to facilitate a dialogue between the parent and the adolescent in terms of actually what's the meaning of what's going on. The way I think about it is I try to help sometimes the teenagers to see that particularly when they're self-harming and they do not wish to die, and they're very clear about that, but for them it has a comforting or coping function. What I try to help them see sometimes is the impact this has on their parents, because they don't always see it like that. They think often that this is a coping mechanism for them and it doesn't have to do with the parents. However, for the adolescents, sometimes it can be helpful to almost facilitate a dialogue where they can see why the parent is so frantic, because they care and because they see it as as something terrifying. But at the same time, when we talk to the parents, the way I think of it is almost the opposite, that they need to be helped to see that the self-harm, even though terrifying, even though you know it makes them feel panic, might not always have the meaning they attribute to it. So it's almost as if the, the adolescent needs to see the self-harm as a bit more serious than, not serious, serious in the eyes of the parents, so more related to the parents, what the impact is that it might not be the impact they attribute to it for the parent. And the parent really, really feels implicated, while the adult needs to be helped a little bit to let go and and trust that the adolescent kind of knows themselves and can find their way through it. And they can help them find their way through it, but not necessarily by these very rigid measures, which sometimes can have the opposite effect of that intended. It can create a trapped feeling for the adolescent. It can create a feeling of panic, feeling infantilized. I can understand why the parents would want to do it, but in the end, it doesn't actually achieve what is intended. 
So it's that dialogue between parent and adolescent that has to restart, really, so that in a way the answers won't then be so rigid and concrete, like taking off doors, cutting oneself. The answers can then be dialogue and relationships, even if the dialogue may involve anger sometimes or shared recriminations. But that's okay. We were able to talk about feelings. That's the goal we would have. Because I think for Maria and I, I suppose there are some situations where the responsibility for safety needs to be almost completely taken out of the adolescent's hands. But a huge amount of our work has been to avoid getting to that situation. And, you know, in a UK context, that's really where we're thinking about hospitalisation. You know, I think this is probably something that is different across the world. But in a UK context, at least, I think we would consider that for the majority of young people, that is something we would want to try and avoid. That it really, having a period in hospital, at least the hospitals in the UK, it can often, well, as much as it can, in ways, help keep the young person safe, it can also lead to other difficulties. And I suppose one of them is being in the company of other young people 24-7 who have very similar difficulties to you, which can have different sides to it, of course. but. I suppose we've seen situations where it's been very unhelpful and and hard to integrate the young person then back into their family and into their normal life. In most cases, Maria and I, we really want to respect the autonomy of the young person and their ability to make decisions for themselves. And I suppose in that way, I certainly, you know, when I meet a young person for the first time, my focus is on building a relationship with them and trying together to kind of build an understanding about what's going on for them. It's not trying to kind of as quickly as possible eliminate all self-injurious behavior. Sometimes putting too much focus on the kind of external symptom, it can often not help the external symptom and it can send the wrong message about what's interesting and what's what's actually the kind of the area where change can happen in a way that's really kind of meaningful and, and long lasting. You know, when I said about respecting their autonomy, I mean, the cases that I've worked with that have you know, I've seen the most change. It's when the young person themselves really decides that they want something to be different, that they really want to stop self-harming or they want things to be different in their life or in their family. And that can take a little while to get to. They might begin by saying that they want that, but actually there might be all sorts of resistances that they haven't appreciated or that, you know, you as a clinician can't know about to begin with. And I suppose that journey can be, I guess, very moving. And I suppose what we would consider leading to kind of change that sticks because you know again thinking about our framework as being psychoanalytic psychotherapists I think sometimes with symptoms it can be a little bit like whack-a-mole where you kind of quash one and then another one can pop up because what is underlying it has not been addressed and so even if you can be very effective in changing the symptom it could change into something else more worrying I mean I've definitely known cases where self-injurious behavior has turned more into, I don't know, maybe chronic fatigue or something more somatic, which has a kind of a a passive element to it, but can be equally distressing and, and destructive. Talking about this identity that many young people who self-injure take on is, you know, this is part of who I am. And building on your comment about the symptom, you've talked about focusing on what they might be doing through their symptom rather than on the symptoms themselves, which is similar to when we talk about self-injury. We don't want to focus so much on the behavior and lose the person. So when you're talking about focusing on what the young person is doing through their symptoms and using the mental health language that they're using, rather than on the symptoms themselves. 
practically speaking, maybe in a therapy session, what would that look like? What does that mean? Well, I think we would be starting by accepting that there is a function and a meaning to everything in life that we do. So we would then try to understand through a dialogue and getting to know the young person and their family what the function and the meaning is in the particular context. That doesn't mean we don't pay attention to the risk or to the actual symptom. Of course we do. And when they want to talk about it, of course they can talk about it. But we're trying to understand why it's happening at this point in time, in this particular moment in their lives, and in this particular family, and in this particular group of friends, and in this particular school. Or So every young person who self-harms or, frankly, does anything else will have their own journey, their own personality, and their own uh, story to say about it. And actually, I want to say this can be done quite quickly. I don't want to give the impression that this is a journey where we enter into a two-year long-term psychotherapy necessarily to understand this. Sometimes, because there's a crisis, the function of a symptom can be really fairly quickly revealed because something is spoken through this crisis for the family or for, or sometimes for the group of friends as well, or for the young person themselves. I don't know if that's practical enough or it gives a flavor. Maybe an example how this might carry out? I think an example very practically is that very, very simply, we wouldn't be starting our work with checklists of a formal risk assessment where we would go through, you know, these are the measures you have to take. This is what the parents need to do. We wouldn't be asking formal questions, the same ones for each young person, you know, have you thought of self-harm yesterday? Did you think of... We would be trying to work this in our understanding of the young person as a person as a whole. I don't know if that makes sense. So I think that's one one way. So we wouldn't put the risk and eliminating the risk at the center of our work in the same way that a more formal risk assessment would. Partly also because we really believe we're not that powerful to be able to eliminate the risk or the symptom just by by making a, a formal agreement. Sometimes it can be very useful, actually. To take some measures for the parents, of course, to be very much aware if the young person is vulnerable or if they're going through a particular tough time. And of course, we do all the, the usual things I imagine you do in the US where we have a crisis line and ways for them to get in touch with us outside of normal working hours. But we really believe in the power of the therapy relationship and just being alongside them and getting to know them. What does it mean for them? And also slowing things down a bit and calming things down so that we're not drawn in by yeah. intense feelings that everybody's experiencing. And I think to go back to that idea of being an, an adolescent crisis or a crisis in adolescence, I suppose we believe that if a crisis has arisen, it's because something isn't working or something hasn't been understood or something isn't going right. As Maria said, the nature of crisis is that that might be quite close to the surface or for us, you know, in a way, be, be maybe sometimes quite obvious. I don't mean that in a condescending way at all. You know, an example I can give is that quite often we'd see young women and sometimes young men as well who have very high kind of almost like perfectionistic standards for themselves. When they struggle to reach those, they feel very guilty or they feel like they're a failure. And I suppose being able to sort of, as a therapist, give a bit of a, a voice to that, both to them, but also to those around them. And the other thing which can often be an issue for young people who have those sorts of personality facets, but also also other young people as well, is sort of ways of expressing anger and aggression. Often I find myself in first appointments saying things along the lines of, gosh, you know, that sounds like something that would make me feel quite angry. 
And young people, they might often deny this, at least to begin with, because it's not an emotion they feel comfortable expressing. They don't want to see themselves in that way, but that a symptom can sometimes function to give voice to that feelings that can't yet be spoken about, but that might be able to be expressed over time. You mean like maybe self-injuring as opposed to allowing oneself to experience that feeling of anger? Yeah. Yeah, experience it or express it. Yes, or even acknowledge it within yourself. There is also an assumption sometimes, I don't know if it's a wider cultural tendency, that when we have a feeling, we have to express it, we have to find a way to cope with it. Even the word, the words coping mechanism, (laughs) I sometimes have questions about because we don't always have to have a coping mechanism or do something with our feelings. The first thing is to even acknowledge them within ourselves, but we all have feelings. We can't live a life without them. They just are part of who we are. So I think even this basic ability to self-reflect and to understand what it is they're feeling is the first part of the dialogue. So it's about entering into that space where they can start having some curiosity about what it is they're thinking about themselves and why it is they think that self-injury will provide an answer. It's not an intellectual discussion, obviously, I'm talking about. It's more a discussion that happens within a relationship. And when you're talking about focusing on understanding the meaning of maybe self-injury or a symptom such as self-injury, how do you get at that? What might be some questions that you would use to get at the meaning behind a crisis, a meaning behind self-injury, self-harm? Well, I think we all might have had different ways of doing this, but very, very simply, very basically, just asking. So, for example, if they tell me, I really think I have ADHD or I really think I'm, I'm very depressed, I will show interest and I will say, well, explain to me what do you mean by that? What does that mean to you? Because I might have my own definition, so tell me what's going on with you. What, what does depression mean to you at this time? So then it will open up a dialogue. I think that would be my first, my first way of opening it up as a question rather than assuming I know what they mean when I hear the word depression. And I suppose, you know, if we're thinking particularly about self-injury or self-harm, really showing a lot of curiosity in terms of what happened before, during and, and after. What's the kind of the sequence of events? In our kind of psychoanalytic language, we would say, like, what are the what are the fantasies the young person holds in that context? But really, what are the kind of maybe the more private thoughts that they wouldn't share about the different situations? So, you know, quite often with young people, you'll end up hearing stories that could feel very different for different people in different contexts. And it might make them feel very kind of embarrassed and ashamed at at how upset or how affected they've been by certain things. And so I suppose in the therapeutic context, creating a space where it feels comfortable to talk about how difficult they might be finding certain situations. I mean, maybe how kind of humiliating it might be to open Snapchat and realize that your your friends have been doing something that you're not invited to, or you know how difficult it might be to get home and to feel unable to do the homework you've been set that you knew you should have done a few nights ago, but somehow didn't. That these things that, as you say, they're very kind of um, normal, perhaps kind of universal experiences for adolescents, and would not lead to the same responses in different young people. What happened for them that that it did lead to something more serious in that situation, and how can we how can we make sense of that? I think sometimes it can be that's where the relationship with the therapist can be really key that those things can be spoken about and explored in the way that it might not feel so comfortable in in other settings. What is also very interesting in terms of what I've noticed in the last years is that young people often nowadays, more than used to be, will come to us as therapists and assume 
we want to talk in the language of mental health in a particular way, in the language of the DSM. So just by us posing these questions, what do you mean by depression? How do you think of it? I may think of it in my own way. What's your definition? They can find it quite surprising. And I find myself often that I'm the one almost pushing to talk in a more, I guess, everyday language. And the young person often will want to talk more in the language of mental health, which I find an interesting reversal in recent years. And I do wonder whether that has to do as well with the fact that there is increasing mental health awareness in society, which is very positive in certain ways. But it can also sometimes lead to assumptions about mental, what mental health is, is and what it isn't that aren't always, in every case, very helpful. So it's an interesting reversal, isn't it, that some years ago we would be trying to help somebody address, for example, their anxiety or their depression or come to terms with it. And nowadays it can almost be sometimes the opposite. And it's a hard technical dilemma how to work with that. But I find just by being curious and building an, an honest and ordinary relationship, yes, it can work very well. That's interesting because it leads right into my next question. We're talking about Snapchat. We're talking about coming in with a preconceived notion of what depression or self-injury might mean. And before, you know, there's Dr. Google, there's WebMD, <laughs> and now it's social media. And a lot of psychologists, a lot of therapists are seeing people, young people and coming in saying, I saw this on TikTok, I saw this on Instagram, and, and I think this is what I have. I think this is what's going on and presenting to the therapist, to the psychologist, the conceptualization and the reason and their own self-diagnosis. So where does this framework come in here? How would you respond or understand self-injury in the context of someone coming in based off of information they've seen on social media? Well, I guess I would start by saying we're all guilty of that to some degree. As you said, Dr. Google, <laughs> very easy to find answers for whatever symptoms we have or things we're worried about. So, of course, young people will do the same. I don't want to demonize the internet at all or social media. I don't think that's helpful or even true, according to the research. Mm -hmm. There are very, very positive elements in all these changes. But I think there is an acceleration in the way information comes to young people. There is so much, and to us, but particularly to young people who are online. They've grown up in this world, and particularly with the pandemic, they were online more than they normally would. There is an acceleration, first of all, in just the amount of information and things they, they tend to see, and it can be nonstop. And I think it can be very hard to process all that, including their social life, which can be nonstop because of the internet. So when they come with a diagnosis, it's often because I wonder whether they are trying to fix something down and, and stop the acceleration and the kind of overwhelming flow of information by saying, this is it, this is who I am, I've now, you know, I have ADHD, I have depression, I've understood it. So I've some, I sometimes do think whether there is a function of that, of containing things and calming them down, because there is an overwhelming experience, I don't know if you find, when young people are online so much, constantly discussing these things. So that's one element. And I think also it's very, very confusing for parents because the current parent generation grew up in a very different world and they don't quite know how much to limit, how much to encourage internet use. So that's another area of difficulty. Those are my first mm -hmm. two. I think for me, there's something about how the internet can really flatten hierarchies. You know, before, for example, you know, you would have needed your psychiatrist to look up the DSM in their office and that information would have been held with them as the professional. 
Whereas in Alaya, anyone can access this information. And of course, it might mean very different things to us depending on our, on our own backgrounds and how we understand it. But there is that open access, which I think, as Maria said, can have a very helpful side to it. I suppose that idea that it can also be quite limited. One thing I find really important when working with young people who come and have clearly done a lot of research is to really resist any feeling of wanting to be kind of competitive with them about that. If they want to, if it's important and meaningful for them to talk in this way, to really, you know, be able to kind of adopt that language where they are with it and understand what they mean by it, rather than say, well, actually, I'm the expert and this is my way of understanding it, which is much better than what Dr. Google has told you. Because, you know, Marie and I were in the business of building relationships and that being part of um, what can be helpful about therapy, rather than kind of arguing the point on these things. When I've seen young people over a period of time, sometimes they've been able to kind of reflect back. And one child a few weeks ago said to me, I think I was radicalized on TikTok, that these ideas became so kind of seductive for a time around sort of mental health and how I think for them particularly, it was how other people should or should not be responding to their mental health identity. It was perhaps something quite kind of anchoring and important for them for a period of time that they were then able to move on from and, and reflect on. And that's a very normal part of adolescence to get um, very pulled into, you know, a certain way of understanding oneself or understanding the world for a period of time that can then gradually move on. And I think there's two big mistakes, two big traps that we can all fall into. One is what Rachel, you implied, to dismiss an adolescent's, for example, self-diagnosis if they have one. And be, you know, come from the position of expert and say, absolutely, you don't have this or you're doing just this for attention. That would be completely humiliating for them and very, very wrong on every level and not respectful because they know themselves better. And this is what makes sense to them at this point in time. But equally, there can be the second trap, which maybe we talk less about, which is to take a given diagnosis or a given way of understanding themselves at this point in time as necessarily being what will happen in 10 years' time or what will make sense to them in the future. Because, and I would say, I would actually claim that's the same for all of us. We have the right to change. We have the right to explore ourselves. Sometimes we may have an identity for many years that makes a lot of sense, but then it might not make sense anymore. And so I think holding that balance is important to be in the space they want to be in, respect, understand, explore, open it up, but also allow the window to be open. <laughs> for the chance if they want to change their minds and uh, to just allow curiosity. We have the right to change. I like that. That's a really good approach. And I think about these things and we don't want to invalidate them coming in. We're in the business of building relationships. When I think about these things, I think about parents who might not necessarily agree the self-diagnosis that maybe their child or adolescent is coming to them with. And so they may be a little bit more invalidating or might not just not intentionally do it, but it's a scary thing to come with some of these behaviors like self-injury or diagnoses like depression or other ones. And so it's easier to overlook. And then what I may see is that the adolescent and their identity development dig in harder. They dig in deeper to that identity in order to prove to their caregiver that, yes, this is who I am and this is my struggle. And then that's when I may see a crisis happen, because it's not necessarily that it was a crisis to begin with, but when they didn't see themselves as being taken seriously at first, then it can get to that. And I don't know if I'm seeing this correctly, though. No, absolutely. It's exactly what I think we were trying to get at, that we all have the right, and adolescents do as well, and young children, to name ourselves and to understand ourselves in the way we do. 
And it can be very invalidating when somebody comes and says, you're wrong. I mean, parents often do this because of worry or because they genuinely just don't agree. Yeah. But it's a very difficult tension to hold. And yet we do need to try to hold it. On the one hand, to respect, to understand what they mean by what makes sense to them. Not interrogate it, but at the same time, give them the sense that life is full of change. And that can be difficult, I think, nowadays. It's in our culture, in our society. I don't think that's an idea, that second bit. The idea of change, I'm not sure we're in a culture that necessarily thinks a lot about change. We think more about identity and understanding ourselves rather than change and fluidity. I mean, one thing, you know, Maria and I would think a lot about with parents is how to take the communication that the young person is making very seriously without necessarily taking every word they say at face value. Yes. I mean, that's something that's that I think even most adults can identify with, that maybe in the in heat of the moment, you might say things that, you know, you're trying to get a feeling across, but how you put them is not quite correct. And I think, you know, when you talked about them sort of digging in deeper, I think that's something we've seen time and again, that if the young person doesn't feel like their communication, whatever that is, is being taken seriously. So I'm in crisis. This situation is too much. I need something different for my family. If that communication isn't heard on some level, what other option do they have other than to um, up the ante, in a sense, until until they are listened to? You know, sometimes it can be quite sort of simple, practical things. So I worked with a young person recently who, you know, is very engaged in their therapy, but was also very interested in getting a kind of a psychiatric point of view on, on what they're experiencing. And I agreed on some level that it would be helpful. And I think for various reasons, there were delays in that that left them feeling quite kind of undermined and I suppose on a level kind of not understood. And I think that really led to sort of a deterioration during that period that didn't need to happen, actually. That's unfortunate. Yeah. Just being able to validate what they're experiencing, walk alongside them, find meaning. What does these behaviors, these symptoms mean to them? I'm interpreting as that's part of this shorter term therapy that you're advocating for in such cases that because it's a crisis, that doesn't mean it has to be long term therapy. Yes, we always think of Winnicott, who is a very well-known psychoanalyst. We refer to Winnicott's work so much. And he wrote about trying to find the briefest intervention possible to affect change. Of course, he was also an analyst and valued and engaged in longer-term work. But because we're talking about adolescents who, developmentally, they are in the in the business of separating and individuating, Sometimes, you know, entering into a, a, a therapeutic relationship that we take for granted will be very long term can be completely against their developmental pathway and their developmental needs. Sometimes they need a piece of work that is shorter. It really depends case by case, doesn't it? But the other reason we really believe in brief psychotherapy as a very important part of crisis work is if we really believe that the crisis is much broader than just, you know, what's wrong with this adolescent, we need to fix them. And if we actually believe this has a meaning, there's a function, and the function is held within the context, within the family, within the school, within the group surrounding the young person, their friends, and themselves, then we want to give the message that the environment, all of us together, need to play an active role and do this together, and do this in a fairly quick and responsive way so that the adolescent can be held. And I think this fits with a brief way of working very well because we don't want to give the message that you know they need they have a serious problem that we need to enter into relationship forever with them and that will be 
the only thing that can help. No, we want to empower the parents and the school and and the adolescent themselves, that all of us together can figure this out. And sometimes, I mean, this is not enough. Sometimes longer-term therapy is indicated, but very often in a crisis, brief work can be very effective and meaningful and can be enough. One more question before we wrap things up. We're talking about brief therapy and brief interventions when they're, of course, appropriate. Sometimes longer therapy is necessary, like you said. But what should interventions focus on in treatment in these cases, specifically self-injury, moments of crisis, and this mental health language that young people might be using to describe their experience? If we see self-injury or or self-harm as a way young people are turning to action, rather than being able to sort of verbalize or think. I think in a therapy context, we really want to promote the ability to reflect, to mentalize, to think about one's own state of mind, to think about other states of mind, and being able to sort of tolerate anxious, difficult feelings without needing to act on them immediately. And I suppose these are processes that, I mean, they're developing all the time throughout childhood and probably adulthood for a lot of us as well. And for whatever reason in that crisis, particularly in relation to self-injury, have not felt possible that action has been preferable rather than words or being able to think and reflect. So I suppose we would think about that being a focus of the work. And I suppose to broaden that, really being able to make meaning out of crisis, to make meaning out of situations where things go wrong, rather than just pathologizing or thinking about, or, you know, where something becomes sort of horrible and, and unspeakable, that I suppose we're in the business of really wanting to understand and help that understanding be held by not just us as therapists, but in the young person, in the minds of the adults who have some responsibility and who care about them. So I'd say those would be some of the clear things to focus on. And I think also absolutely the ability to reflect, to become curious about oneself is more, I think I would think of it more as the more individual task, both for the parents and for the adolescent. But I would also say the meaning we're talking about, it can sometimes be an unspoken meaning in the wider family. It reminds me of this traditional family therapy idea of family secrets. So sometimes it can be a meaning, something unspoken, something that the crisis has triggered in the family or coming from previous generations even, and it can suddenly occur through this one symptom that it comes up again, it rears its head. So sometimes just a crisis can open up a dialogue in the family. This is where the work is very individualized and both of us feel very strongly about the importance of you know, having a clear formulation in mind of a young person's difficulties um, when we're embarking on this kind of work. So the sort of the model that we've talked about today, it isn't appropriate in every case because it doesn't fit every case. And even cases that it does fit, we apply it in an individualized way based on our understanding of that young person's difficulties, both kind of internally, but also how the environment and the cultural context play a part in this. You know, without that, we generally feel yeah, you're at risk as a therapist of being either pulled into kind of too established a narrative or becoming a bit too distant from the the suffering of the young person in the family you're working with. So you need this as a bit of a kind of a guiding force, something to sort of refer back to. And I suppose also how to kind of balance your intervention because different areas might need more attention given the situation or might be more open to work. So there might be some young people who really want to make use of the individual space versus others who will barely agree to see you. And the same with parents and schools. We try and find the doors that are ajar that we can push against. 
in the hope that that kind of can have a cascade effect. That if, for example, a child sees that their parents are getting something out of what our team is providing, then they might become more interested in it or vice versa. I'm thinking about meaning and making meaning amidst crisis. When a parent learns that their child, their teenager is self-injuring and it's a crisis, sometimes it's hard to make meaning in that moment. And I, I like to think about values and values work like acceptance and commitment therapy, where we can ask ourselves, what kind of parents do we want to be during this moment, during this crisis, as we try to make meaning of it, I suppose, and going by that, being the kind of parent we want to be during those crises. And related on that, based on our conversation today, wrapping things up, what would you recommend specifically to parents of young people who self-injure? I think that they're very important to their teenagers and that they have a lot to offer them. That would be my thought. Yes, even when they don't make you feel that way. Absolutely. Particularly then. Yeah. (laughs) What would you recommend to professionals, whether other clinicians, whether they're psychoanalysts or not, or researchers? I mean, it's very important, first of all, to become able to work together, because sometimes when there's a crisis, the network around a young person can involve a lot of anxiety, understandably. And so all working together is crucial. So that would be a first thought. And a second thought is what we've been talking throughout our discussion today about finding a joint formulation and a meaning, helping the family and the young person, particularly in moments of crisis, become curious about what's going on is something we would say. So instead of immediately, this in a practical way, instead of immediately going into action mode, sometimes you take some time to pause, wonder with a young person what's going on, what led to this, even if it's a school professional, sitting with them for a bit, going through what happened if they have their time, rather than immediately going into a protocol of crisis management. I understand this can be very difficult because schools have their protocols. But by working closely with us, so we as a clinic, for example, we work very closely with schools exactly doing this kind of work, where there can be a pause and we can look together at what led to the crisis before it becomes further, further escalated. That would be my thought about professionals. I would, thinking back on my own journey with this, to not feel, I guess, responsible for stopping a young person self-harming. I think sometimes it can be a really powerful wish maybe in the adolescent, maybe in the parents or in the school, that somehow the therapist has the answers or the tools or something that they can almost kind of magically impart that can change the situation. And I think therapists, they have a huge amount to offer, but they need to maybe, I suppose, slightly detach themselves from the feeling that they need to fix things (laughs) to give themselves the freedom to be, as Maria is saying, more kind of curious. And I suppose to notice when we feel kind of that pressure or we feel kind of very persecuted by what's happening and to find meaning in that as well, in terms of what the, how the family or how the young person wants to position you. And I suppose as a psychoanalytic therapist, we would have ways of thinking about that in terms of the transference, counter-transference, but it's, it's useful for all professionals, I think. And based on our conversation today, what would you each recommend to people with lived experience of self-injury? I think I wouldn't recommend anything. I would want them to tell me what they would find helpful for me, how I could help them. So I would be led by them. That would be my first thought. And I would try to think about the importance of connection with them, connection with themselves, connection with others, how that feels to them, whether they feel they are connected to others or not. I would try to help them see the importance of connection. For me, I mean, I I completely agree with What Maria is saying, and I think I would add to that, to try to be open to being curious about themselves, about their states of mind, and what might 
be influencing how they feel. Yes, I suppose to find ways to have that openness rather than, I suppose, the opposite, which is being quite a rigid way of, of understanding oneself. I like that being curious of oneself and one's experiences rather than judgmental of them. Yeah. Thank you both. Thank you, Dr. Papadima. Thank you, Dr. Atchison, for taking your time to talk about a really interesting topic related to psychoanalysis, psychodynamic understanding of self-injury in young people in crisis. So it kind of feels like a bird's eye view to an extent. There's so much more to this, I know. I'm going to link in the episode notes to some of your work for people that might want to read more about it. So thank you for this really interesting conversation. Thank you so much for having us. It's been very interesting. Thank you. Yes, thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast. If you have found this podcast helpful and would like to give back, please subscribe and please help others find us by giving us a five-star rating, writing a positive review, and or telling your friends and colleagues. If you'd like to interact with us, we welcome you to respond to our questions and polls under each episode in Spotify. This podcast is not considered therapy or meant to be a replacement for therapy, so if you or someone you love is in crisis and needs to talk to someone, you can reach out to the Crisis Text Line, a global not-for-profit organization providing free mental health texting service through confidential crisis intervention by texting HOME to 741-741. For all things psychology, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at DocWesters. For all things self-injury, follow IPSS on Facebook and Twitter at I-T-R-I-P-L-E-S. I'm Dr. Nicholas Westers. Thank you for listening to The Psychology of Self-Injury.